Um, we are coming this morning and celebrating the second holiest day in the church calendar, Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there, um, and grandmothers, and people who act like mothers. Um, my wife likes to say that I work in a church, and there are a lot of church ladies, because I need lots of moms to keep me on the straight and narrow. And she's not necessarily wrong. Maybe she's right, but I don't ever want her to catch me saying that in public. But we come today and we celebrate that, and there's, there's something about mothers and parenthood that is symbolic of sacrifice. I mean, it is a sacrifice. You don't do this because, um, you know, you have this great gain. You don't have children and raise them and love them and pour yourself into them because there's a, a great return on investment, so to speak, because they're going to go out and, and get rich and give you a healthy and good retirement. I heard someone over here say, mumble, that would be nice. <laughs> we all share that sentiment sometimes. But no, we, we don't do this uh, for our own personal gain. We do it for the selfless act of loving and pouring ourselves into the next generation, the people who God has given us to care for, the people who we desire to love deeply. It's an act of sacrifice that has deep, deep cost. You know, I was, as I said in one of my first sermons, I know that whole first sermon series, I threw a whole lot of stories about my life at you to get to know me better, to learn who I am and a little bit about me. And one of the stories, and you'd be forgiven for not remembering it in my second sermon, because that seems like a year ago now, even though it was only nine weeks. And in that sermon, I used an illustration about seeing Flossenburg camp. And Flossenburg's a town in southern Germany in Bavaria. Bavaria is like the Texas of Germany. And instead of cows, though, they're more about horses. So maybe a little flair of Kentucky, I don't know. And in Flossenburg, I talked in that sermon about walking to the top of the old Flossenburg. And Berg is literally just a fortified place. And Floss is the name of the village. So Flossenburg is literally the castle of Flossenburg or the fortified place of Flossenburg, if you're more direct in your translation. And we climbed to the ruins of this like 1,200-year-old castle, and we looked around, and of course we saw what they call a football field, but we all know the proper name is soccer, and, and we saw all the green, lush forests of the valley around us. And then we turned to, towards the back of town. We looked over the village, and it's a quaint little village that's been there longer than anything us Americans can think of. And we look at the far back, and then at the very back of the valley, it's kind of dark, and there's this little camp. And that camp is Flossenburg Concentration Camp. And so when I went to Germany the first time, I had a buddy who got stationed over there. He's an officer in the army, and we flew over there to visit him one year without our wives, which probably wasn't the smartest choice we made in our whole entire adult lives. But we flew over there, and as we are going through, we're, we're hitting tourist stops, and my friend thought of me, knowing that I was a pastor and a student of theology, so we stopped in Flossenburg for a day and toured it and went through it and went to the camp and toured the camp. And if you've never been to a camp like that, it is one of the most profoundly moving experiences. Because you walk on the grounds and you know something significant happened here. 
Flossenburg was a VIP camp, a lot of political dissidents mostly. It was also a work camp, so they would work, literally work people to death. And we walk through, and I have all these pictures, and, and actually love, t- weirdly enough, talking about this experience of, of walking through a concentration camp. And it's interesting to see how it was reclaimed and changed throughout the day. The whole camp at one point had been a toy factory. Talk about resurrection and bringing life from death. And we hit all the the things, I guess you could say, the normal things for touring a concentration camp. You know, we we, uh, hit... The, the meaningful in-processing center that they all have. We, we hit the, the SS Barracks, which is now a really, really hip coffee shop, which is strange. And then, you know, we, we toured, there's a chapel in the back. We toured a giant pile of ashes in the far back, and then the crematorium. And all of these are moving and painful to see. And then we got to an unsuspecting little almost stone hut on the side of the property. It's off away from everything else. It had like three or four little cells and a small little gathering room at the front and a little stone courtyard with stone walls around it. Very unsuspecting. You never would have even noticed this. You would have thought it was like a garden shed or where they stored the tractors or something. But this was where they put the most important political prisoners. And at the last of the cells, at the very far end of the building, when you walked in and turned right, was the cell where a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. And my friend, knowing I was a student of theology, took me here just to see this. And we walked back there, and we went to Bonhoeffer's cell, and we walked to the gathering room, and the little gathering room was where he was doing his last church service, when the SS guards came in and they took him out and they hung him for what he believed. And then off in the forest somewhere in an unmarked, unknown grave with all the other VIPs, they buried him just a couple weeks before the units from Oklahoma and Texas came and liberated Flossenburg. Bonhoeffer is what we'd known as a modern-day martyr, dying for his faith, a saint of the church who wrote a book that was really his seminal work on what it means to be a disciple. He called it The Cost of Discipleship, and it's where I get the title from the sermon from Costly Discipleship, because in his mind, the church had aligned very too quickly with the forces that were moving through his nation, and he was concerned about it. And what landed him there in Flossenburg was his ability to preach and teach, even at great cost, to his family, to his own freedoms, to his life. And you might be thinking, man, that's a really weighty subject to bring up on the second holiest day of the Protestant church calendar. But when we engage with 1 Peter in the third chapter, it fits so well. Because parenting 
is not this easy task. It's not a bunch of neat, cute pictures we see on Instagram. It's this hard, messy thing where at times, as a parent, you've got to decide what I really stand for. Not in some theological, abstract way like us theologians do when we write papers or articles and we sound self-important, like we actually know what we're talking about. But instead, you stand for something that is costly and it has to be real because the person sitting in front of you isn't a bunch of people in a church service that are hearing you preach. The person sitting in front of you is your own child who needs to see that love and that light or maybe that discipline or maybe the boundaries set or maybe they just need to go to sleep. We've all been there before if you're a parent. But to take that path of parenting is no less a sacrifice where you lay down your own life. You lay down part of your own identity. That those children might prosper. That they might do well. And so we come today and we see that in 1 Peter as we read this passage, you know, Peter is talking. It's the end of chapter uh, 3, and as he's coming through, it's the last two paragraphs of that. And he's actually beginning to wrestle for the very first time as he's writing with this concept of struggle and persecution of the church for what they believe. And as he's doing that, he begins talking about self-sacrifice. And that self-sacrifice being that no matter what you do, if you are with Christ and you do it with Christ, you can't be harmed. And you say, well, wait a minute, pastor. You just told us a story about a profoundly important pastor who was put to death for doing what Christ asked him to do. Isn't First Peter kind of wrong? Or even as a parent, taking this on a personal level, you can think of many times where you thought you did the right thing, and it blew up in your face. You, you looked at your child or your spouse or your other family member, and you're like, man, that is not how I thought that would go. But what Peter tells us is that if we do good with Christ, no harm will come to us. We will experience that blessing. And it all breaks down on the word of blessing. There are kind of two biblical concepts around blessing. You know, you have the older one in the Old Testament, and it's more of a transactional form of blessing. You know, we talk about the blessing that is tied to the covenant. And so if you look through the Old Testament stories of covenant and blessing, you see that blessing being passed from one generation to the other, almost like a, we would pass something in our family from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. That blessing itself was tied to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And it had a transactional nature in that there was expected things happening on both sides of that covenant. The nation of Israel and the people who held that blessing would live this way, and God would uphold his end of the blessing over here. And that's a little bit different than, say, the New Testament understanding of blessing in Matthew 5. If we look at Matthew 5, which is the Beatitudes, which are quite literally translated the blessings, that 
blessing doesn't have that transactional component. It doesn't have the here and now. You do this and God will bless you now. This one almost has more of a future sense. And it's usually associated in the way Matthew uses it with some sort of second coming, some sort of hereafter, or what theologians might call the second advent. And Peter is using that same word and that same concept here. The idea that nothing would bad would befall you, that you would be, in Peter's words, blessed if you continue to do good and follow the path of God isn't necessarily a here and now thing. But it's something that's rewarded much later on. And this, I think, speaks at the heart of the sacrifices of parenting. Because it's like planting a seed in the ground, if any of you have ever gardened. And you water it, and you do everything right, and you, you worry, is this really going to grow? And if you're like me, there's a good chance it doesn't. And, but you still, you wonder, is it really going to grow? Is, is the pH in the soil right? Is this right? Is that right? Am I watering it too little? Or as I learned one day, you can water plants too much. And, you know... Is the balance right? Am I doing the right thing? Am I making the right sacrifices so it might sprout and grow? And parenting, like that future blessing, is a lot of this work where we get down on the level of our children and help them to understand things and concepts, help them to feel loved and secure and safe, sometimes help them to do things beyond their capabilities and their own level of understandings. And here and now, it might seem like a futile effort, as if we're throwing our time and energy away, as if we're shouting into some big void of childhood. But that future blessing from all of that sacrifice and all of that hard work pays off when you get to the other end. And you see the people that they've become. You can't quite see it when you're holding them in your arms and making those sacrifices. But you begin to see it, and you begin to have hope a little bit later as they start growing up, and you watch them make choices and decisions, and they, they fall here, they fail here, but they get up, and they dust themselves off, and they try again. And then you see it a little more as they grow up, and they spread their wings, and they fly away, and sometimes kind of like, you know, a bird, they, they fly away, and then they, they make a U-turn, they come back to the nest but you still love them. And even when they do, you're proud of who they've become. You are blessed in that future date by the sacrifices and the good path you followed beforehand. See, that's the sacrifice of parenting we see here. And what it takes is a realization that that blessing isn't just transactional like they talked about in the Old Testament, but it's really that one that Matthew talked about, that Peter talks about here, that even when it feels like the world might be against you, you still do good in the name of Christ, and that blessing will appear in the future in some way, somehow, in some form. 
It works with parenting. It works with our faith, as Peter outlines here. As we struggle against the hardships of this world and the times that we struggle and want to give up, we're reminded time and time again that that blessing comes, and it might not be the what we expect, and it might not be how we want it, but it comes at some further date down the path. And though we might mess up, we still walk that path, no matter how costly it can be. And we will mess up. I mean, if you've ever parented a child before, you mess up literally all the time, and you, you stand back every few years and think, wow, despite every place I've messed up, they turned out okay. You know, I was younger than my children are now in elementary school, and there was a big storm that blew through Bell County. And it was, it was a funnel cloud, and... and, and we were all hunkered down like you would do in the bathroom, you know, with the blankets and everything, if you've ever been in one of those storms. And as the storm blew through, we thought the worst of it was over, so we got up and we followed my mom out. I love this story, and I've got to tell it before my family moves to town in two weeks. <laughs> we walked out to our laundry room where we kind of had windows on, on two of the walls and a glass door out the back, and you could see out down into a little valley towards the Leon River, and they wanted to show us like what the wind was doing and how the trees sway when one of those storms comes. And then one of, the, one of the moments that is pivotal for me and my sister happened. My mom looked out over the valley and said, wow, you two, look how violently the trees are swaying. And about that time, there was a giant cedar tree that was so wide I couldn't put my arms around it even now. And it had been swaying back and forth. And about the time she finished saying that, it began to lean towards the house. But it didn't go back. It just kept coming. And it began to fall on the house. Now, we were in no real danger, but the sight and sound of that for elementary students scared the daylights out of us. And we turned around to find our loving mother was gone. <laughs> she had decided that was the moment to exit the laundry room and go back to the bathroom. And the two of us were left there wondering what was going on as the tree fell, but ever so gently just leaned against the house. See, we mess up. We mess up. I love my mom. I know she would never abandon me in the face of a giant storm, for real. I hope. But we mess up as parents. We mess up as people of faith when we walk that path towards the future that the blessing of God has for us. We, we mess up and it gets messy, and it, sometimes we can look back like this time and laugh about it. And I'm sure all of you have those kind of stories, whether it's with your own children or if you don't have children with your own parents, and you're even thinking of them now like, man, mom did that, and it was really kind of ridiculous. Or, or, or my dad did, forgot about this, and man, that was rough for him. That's also you cue guys, if you forgot, it's Mother's Day. I, I have about 
five and a half more minutes so you can go figure something out out in the parking lot and come back in and act like you'd planned it. Um, that's the pivotal part. But we, we on this path of life as we're called to something greater and called to continue to do the good work as Peter says here, we go on this path and we mess up at times. And at times we need to experience that grace as the world pulls us off of that path and challenges the faith we cling to. Towards the end of this passage, Peter talks about something I think that's pretty important. It's one of the really hard questions of, of really to answer for students in confirmation, the big one I think of when I think about this and when I wrote about it this week. When you study the ancient creeds of the church and what we believe, and there's an old, old creed called the Apostles' Creed. If you're older, you know what that is. And there's a part most churches omit where it says Jesus descended into hell. And, and that reference actually comes from this passage we read today as it talks about Jesus descending to preach to those who are in prison. And there are a lot of ways to interpret that. There are a lot of ways to interpret it. You know, Thomas Oden, who was a bishop way back in the day, said there are really five or six ways to do that. And, and one of the ways he lifted up was this idea that Christ comes to us, and he comes in the humility that he has. He comes to us wrapped in that humility. He comes and he descends into the vile, icky mess of life, and he descends down to the point where we struggle, and it takes part in that human struggle we have. In other words, to use the illustration we've been running through this whole sermon, he joins us on that path we're walking to that future blessing. Christ literally comes alongside us. God, wrapped in flesh, walks with us as we struggle through that life. And that takes a lot of humility for the creator of the universe to engage directly and personally with us as we wrestle with the hard failures of walking that path whether it's leaving your kids behind in the laundry room during a storm or the many other ways we have failed, Christ walks that path with us. And that humility that God has in doing that sets a, proud, or a proper example for how we are to deal with our own pride in walking with others. You know, one of the most impactful things I ever saw was an old pastor serving communion. And it's one of the things I've copied when I served communion, getting down. And when he served communion to the little kids who came forward, he would literally squat down all the way like this and serve them on their level. And when I read this passage about how God interjects, he comes down to where the prisoners are to preach to them. I think about that old man getting down, and I'm sure his knees weren't the greatest thing in the world at that point. He was in his 70s. I'm sure it wasn't what he wanted to do. But more than the things that pushed against him wanting, more than the things that pushed against him not wanting to do that, was the desire to serve that child in front of him face to face. I've seen this in parenting. There was uh, a picture right after the royal family 
Kate and the prince she married had kids. And they went to visit Canada. And there's this picture of her, like, dressed to the nines and in heels. And she's having to discipline her son. And we've all been there. We might not have been royal people. We might not have looked fancy. But we might have just been in the parking lot at Walmart. Or you could have been fancy. You could have been in the parking lot at Target. And, <laughs> and you grab that child, and you have to get down on their level. And you have to preach to them while they're in prison. You know, sometimes that's what God does for us. He, he, he humbles himself, comes to our level, walks beside us on that path, and helps us get through it. Even if getting through it is the struggles of this life contrasted with the faith and hope in Christ we possess, or if the struggles are simply walking through the toy aisle without touching every single little thing. Or if the struggles are standing up for the grace of Christ, despite the calls of the world to invite us to hate and divide. What we see here in the last two paragraphs of 1 Peter Chapter 3 is a God who not only understands what it means to parent, but leads us to understand what it means to follow well and paints perfectly for us the picture of how much that path will cost. Faith, like parenting, is at the end of the day a path of martyrdom. Because little by little we sacrifice ourselves in the face of this world for the blessings of the next. Offering not hostility and malice to those who would persecute, but only love and grace. Because we follow the one who is described as a lamb silently being led to slaughter. And so too, we on the paths, we walk to that future blessing, no matter the persecution and the pain, no matter the struggles, no matter the fact that the children just won't sleep and life is difficult and things are hard, no matter the fact that we struggle in a divided age to find center, we will imitate our Christ and pay the high cost of discipleship to walk that path of faith with humility. To walk that path of love and parenting with grace, abounding for the ones we parent and the ones we love, abounding also, if harder, for ourselves when we fail. Church, we 
are called to walk that path and live that good life, doing the good work of Christ, knowing that we will be blessed for it, no matter the cost. And we have the examples of people like our mothers and our grandmothers, our aunts, strong women who have led us in our lives that we celebrate today that show us what it means to live that costly life, what tolls we have to pay to walk that path to that future blessing. And we would do good to imitate them, whether it's our mom or our grandmother or the 18,000 grandmothers you have adopted at church, you know, whether it is the teacher who you look up to or the person who helped raise you, or whether it's a man who silently offered himself at whatever cost to proclaim the gospel in the face of persecution. We walk that path of faith towards that future blessing, and we have the road lit not only by the Christ who comes alongside us, preaching to us while we're still trapped in our prisons of this life and the pain and suffering we experience, but we have that path lit by the strong people and specifically the ones we celebrate today that have trodden down the path before us. So I want to encourage you, church, wherever you're walking on that path in life today, wherever you find yourself, whether you're the parent and you're struggling with that child who doesn't sleep, whether you're walking down that path of faith and you feel conflicted and upset and confronted by the malice and division of this world, whether you find yourself struggling to even see that path. Hear not only the call of Christ, but see the example of the women who have gone before you, blazing that trail and paying that price because they have laid the groundwork of the path going forward. They have helped you pay that cost of discipleship. And today, as we celebrate them, if we simply walk in that path, then the scripture we read will be given life. And that blessing, although it might come years later, it might come at the end of life, it might even come in the life to come, that blessing, if we walk in their footsteps, will be ours as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We celebrate Holy Communion on this Mother's Day. And as we do, we take pause and remember what Christ did for us at the Last Supper. As he offered himself for us, walking that path, paying that cost of discipleship, descending and preaching to us and the twelve disciples while they were still in the prison of this life. And in the midst of them, he took this bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body broken for you and many for the forgiveness of sins. Eat often of this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup 
Raising it and blessing it, he gave thanks, and he said, This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. Drink often of this in remembrance of me. I invite you all to join me in prayer as we bless these gifts before us. Holy God, come, descend now, and bless these gifts of bread and juice on this Mother's Day. Make them be for all of us the actual body, the blood of Christ that we gathered here might experience your presence as we walk along the path of this life, that we might have just this morning a taste of the blessing to come if we're faithful to that path, that we as your people might faithfully walk and follow your Christ who has offered himself in this way for us. God, empower us this morning that we might in turn be the body of Christ a people redeemed by his blood, that we might declare to the whole world the grace, the love, and the presence of their Savior in their midst, here and now. God, do these things through your Christ, who's offered himself for us once and for all. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.